0: Pastor Jesse accidentally went to my barber. <laughs> He's sad about it. Just kidding. Good morning, church family. It's a joy to be gathered with you like this. He still looks really good. Um, it's a good luck, bud. Uh, grateful to be with you in this room, especially, but also glad to have you, those of you who are tuning in with us uh, online. We want to continue to remind you, those who are watching at home, we really do believe that church is best expressed and experienced uh, when we're together in person in a place like this. And so while we love having the ability for you to join us uh, in that way, uh, we'd love to see your beautiful faces all the more in person. For those who can't make it because they're sick or schedule or whatnot, know that you're missed every time that you're not here with us, and we look forward to having you back with us again. One quick announcement for me just uh, for church life of what's happening right after the service today before we get started Uh, and that is that Jeremy and I are going to be hosting Uh, The Pizza with the Pastor Gathering, and I have a feeling it's going to be a bit of a riot. Uh, Now, this is a time normally where we come together and we hear a little bit about our church and we get to meet some new people and some of our pastors. It's designed for those who would say, uh, you know, you're new or you've kind of come a few times or you even just feel new. You haven't kind of taken that next step to really investigate who we are and where we're headed. It's a place to come, ask questions, and kind of get some clarity on some of those things. Now, Greg normally does these, but he's away on vacation. For one more day, and so he left the two of us in charge. And it could either be the greatest thing we've ever done or the last time we ever get to do this. <laughs> either way, you don't want to miss it. If you've been around with us for the last three years, think socially distanced with Jaron Brode, just not the distanced, and now live and in person. So you can still register to do it. Uh, We just would love for you to let us know so we can order enough pizza and we've got time for you to do that. So literally at our website, you can do that. And then as soon as I'm done preaching, I'm going to be like the Pied Piper. I'm going to walk off the stage and all of you are going to follow me to the the room, the fireside room for the lunch. I'm the Pizza Pied Piper pastor. Say that five times fast. (laughs) Hashtag making pizza great again. Okay, enough of that. Uh, We're continuing our series that uh, we've called Books We Don't Read, a study of the minor prophets. And let's be honest, I hope some of you can be transparent and honest. You might be sitting here, and if you are super honest, you'd say, you know what, there's way more books in the Bible that I don't read other than these minor prophets. In fact, for some of you, this whole book is a book that you don't read, and that's okay. Know that. Uh, but you've got to know that our goal in a series like this is to help equip you to read this book and books like it, because we believe this book can change your life if you'd allow it. And we want to create within you a hunger and a desire for this book. Now, when we say minor prophets, we're talking about 12 books in the Old Testament that were written as prophetic literature. And the reason they're called minor isn't because their impact of their lesser than message to the major prophets, but simply their length. They're shorter. They're short, quick reads. And that's what's so great about this series is you could actually read ahead and be in these books each week. And some of you have reached out and asked us what book's happening this weekend so you can read ahead. It's fantastic. The other thing I just want to help us be familiar with is what the work of a prophet at the time actually was. Because I think when we hear that, that term, that word prophet, we think of someone who's sort of otherworldly, who sees into the future and predicts things that have not yet happened. And while for sure we do have God giving visions to the prophets and helping them see forward into his plan and his mission, which we're going to see today, the bulk of the work of the prophets would be better understood as just the term pastor. It's like what we do here on a week-to-week basis, but instead of being connected to just one congregation like this, they were responsible to bring God's word and calling to the people of God all over the region. And Jonah is a narrative of those 12 minor prophets that's a perfect example, a man whom God called to go and preach a message to the people of Nineveh. All of these minor prophets, they follow a very similar structure in their writing, and central to each of these are words of warning regarding God's judgment to the people for going astray, as well as God's promise for what He's going to do. And so today, we're going to be looking at and working through the book of Micah. And I'm just going to be completely honest with you. You know, you get a little bit of heart on sleeves with Broad. Uh, When I started working through this whole book this week, I was exhausted, (laughs) There's a lot in this book. I thought at one point, you know what, it would take me about 28 minutes to just stand up here and recite the book. Maybe I should just do that, right, instead of trying to distill this down and then still give a message with it all. I was, I was talking with my wife last night and, and with Jeremy this morning, and I said, you know, most people, um, their job, if it's been really hard and heavy and exhausting and they're just not feeling it. You know, they can take a day off at the end of the week. Um, Whereas in this position, like, we get to stand in front of you and then show you our work of the last week in front of a thousand people. It's just bizarre. And I don't say that, you know, to make you feel bad or sorry. Like, we love what we get to do here. But I just want you to know that if you ever open the scriptures and you don't know where to start or you're not feeling it, you're not alone. Now, Micah was one of the professional prophets. So if you were here last weekend, Jeremy uh, worked us through the book of Amos, and Amos, as we know, wasn't a professional prophet. It was a side hustle. His main hustle was being a shepherd. Micah, on the other hand, would have been trained in the realm of of profiting, and so, or profit, I I keep messing with this, I call it profiteering last night, but that's not what it is at all. Um, (laughs) he would have been trained as a prophet. And most people believe that he was trained by Isaiah. He was a contemporary of Isaiah. Uh, He was from the village of Morsesh Gath, some 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem, uh, which Jerusalem was the home of the temple. Micah prophesied sometime, not Michael, uh, between 750 and 690 BC. And his writings were prompted generally by the threat of the Assyrian empire, which was pushing into Samaria and Jerusalem. Things were about to get really bad for the people of Israel. And so Micah, Micah brings this message of warning to prepare them for that. Now, the letter itself also acts as a bit of play on words because Micah's name literally translates to who is like Yahweh, who is like Yahweh, And we're going to see that while Micah absolutely calls the people of Israel out of their sin and out of their self-destruction, he does so while reminding the people over and over again of God's incomparable character and his promises. He holds up God against all the other gods and desires of all the people. And the idea is he's trying to answer that question, who's like Yahweh? And the answer he's going to give is no one. There's no one who's like Yahweh. There's nothing that's like Yahweh. So pointing towards God's plan of becoming once again the the holy and only God who's worthy of their worship, right in the middle of the letter, Micah says this, if you have the Bible, I'd love for you to have it open in front of you. We're going to be bouncing around in this book as we kind of give a big survey of it. But chapter five, he says this, I will remove sorceries from your hands and you'll not have any more fortune tellers. I'll remove your carved images and sacred pillars from you so that you'll no longer worship the work of your hands. I'll pull up the Asherah poles from among you and demolish your cities. I will take vengeance in anger and wrath against the nations who have not obeyed me. We're going to seize. There's going to be times in this, you know, conversation we're going to have that are just going to feel kind of uncomfortable. And that's what the minor prophets do. It's one of the reasons why we kind of avoid these books is this, this sort of stuff isn't encouraging, right? This doesn't make us want to, you know let's go everybody like here we go i'm going to take vengeance and anger and wrath against the nations who've not obeyed me all right i'm going to get that tattooed on my lower back right like we don't think of these things micah he's pointing towards a day when god is going to purify his people but the process of purification is going to be painful it's not going to be pretty he's, he's going to do so by removing all of the other gods in israel so that the one true god can then be worshipped now Before I go any further, I want us to try and see this within a bit of our context. Now Micah's word for sure was written to a specific audience at a specific time that's not us, but it still has supreme importance for us today. We might not struggle as much in our little evangelical bubbles with the worship of other gods. The takeaway for most of you today isn't going to be go home and, and pull up your Asherah poles from your backyards. However, time and time again, we see that our loyalty is constantly Divided, And all of our lowercase g gods that get in the way of, of our worship, our greatest love, loyalty, affection, and attention are just a little bit less obvious and often a little more subtle. However, they're just as dangerous to our full investment in and our ability to walk in obedience towards the person of Christ. For us today, it's all the things that we, we think we can control. I love that that word there from Micah in, in verse 13. He says, so that you'll no longer worship the works of your hands. I mean, is this not typically what gets our greatest love and affection and attention or worship? The things that we are capable of, the things that we think we're in control of. And we we might think that this is new, that this is kind of, this is the different thing of the 21st century. But this echoes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the very beginning in the garden when they made the decision to be for themselves God of themselves. Gods that take our affection and attention and loyalty and devotion today are things like money. They're things like success. There are kids for those of you who are parents. They're, they're often our careers. They're the exact same thing that Micah describes some 3,000 years ago as the work of our hands. And so my friends, I want us to try our best to not think of Micah just as some antiquated message for someone else, but let's try to lean in on it and' we'll see what it calls each of us towards today. And so chapters one and two, uh, we have God appearing to judge the people of Israel. And God shows up like a mighty earthquake and fire, which is a visual that would have been really familiar to those first hearing this message as it was pointing back to God's showing up when he established his covenant with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. Only this time, God's not bringing a covenant to the people, but instead he's calling the people to account for their end of the agreement. Micah chapter one, starting at verse two says this, listen, All you peoples, pay attention, earth and everyone in it. The Lord God will be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is leaving his place and coming down to trample the heights of the earth. The mountains will melt beneath him and the valleys will split apart like wax near a fire, like water cascading down a mountainside. And this will all happen because of Jacob's rebellion and the sins of the house of Israel." Micah's really vivid, and he uses this metaphoric language to really get the attention of the readers. God's judgment is coming as a result of Israel's rebellion. See, the people weren't doing so well. Look at verses 6 and 7, and then 10, 11. It says, quit your preaching, they preach. He's speaking of the people. They should not preach these things. Shame will not overtake us. House of Jacob, should it be asked, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these the things he does? Don't my words bring good to the one who walks uprightly? Get up and leave, for this is not your place of rest, because defilement brings destruction, a grievous destruction. If a man comes and utters empty lives, I'll preach to you about wine and beer, he'd be just the preacher for this people. That's funny. You can laugh sometimes in the Bible. Like, this is what he's literally saying. Hey, what you guys really want is someone to come and tell you how good wine and beer are, you drunks. Like, that's what Micah's saying. That's the mess that these people were in. And then we have Micah shift from the people as a whole to then singling out the leadership of the people of Israel. Because here's the deal we know this. If a group of people are are acting really inappropriately, if they're misbehaving, the first place you should look towards is at the ones who are in charge or the ones who have the greatest influence because the people generally take their cues from those who are at the top of the food chain. And so Micah expands then in chapters three and four as to why judgment is coming. It's coming because of the brokenness of Israel's political leaders, but also the brokenness of her religious leaders. Micah 3, starting at verse 1, uses vivid language in the call-out of the first political leaders. And there's some kids in the room, and so I just, I'm giving you warnings as parents, in all honesty. You might want to just, we don't normally do that with the Bible, but there's some stuff in here that are, it's a little graphic. It says this, then I said, now listen, leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, aren't you supposed to know what is just? You hate good and love evil. You tear off the people's skin. You strip their flesh from their bones. I I warned you. I did warn you, so I'm sorry. It's mostly only getting worse. You eat the flesh of my people after you strip their skin from them and break their bones. You chop them up like flesh for the cooking pot and meat in a cauldron. And then they'll cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because of the crimes that they have committed. Again, it's dark, it's, it's metaphorical. The picture he's trying to paint is, is you leaders, you've taken everything, like literally everything from these people. And they'd done so primarily because they were, they were greedy. They were stealing from them. They were running the land through, through bribery. They were bending justice in order to favor themselves and favor the rich who propped them up. All the while, the poor were being deprived of their land security and their hope. They were literally robbing the blessing from the people and absorbing it as their own blessing. And then Micah goes on to describe that the prophets, they were no better. They were doing much the same thing. Micah 3, verse 5 and 11 says this. This is what the Lord says concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who proclaim peace when they have food to sink their teeth into, but declare war against the one who puts nothing in their mouths. Her leaders issue rulings for a bribe. Her priests teach for payment, and her prophets practice divination for silver. Yet they lean on the Lord saying, isn't the Lord among us? No disaster will overtake us. I mean, the religious people, they were, they were willing to offer words of hope to anyone who was willing to pay them for it. They were accepting bribes from the people to give the people what the people wanted to hear, and they were really arrogant about it, believing that they were untouchable because they were the Lord's servants. The Lord was on their side. Truly, they were spiritual manipulators. And so because of all this... Micah then tells them that God is about to remove his his hand of protection. He's going to withdraw his hand of protection over the people of Israel in that he's going to allow them now to fall at the hands of the Assyrian Empire and then be taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Now, what's beautiful about the book of Micah is that it's not all dark and depressing and that connected to these words of judgment in all of these sections are actually stories and pictures and visuals of great hope and promise of what's to come. God, he's purifying his people. He's, he's weeding those down who are not for Yahweh in order to find the remnant that is truly for Yahweh. And for them, Micah describes, there is tremendous hope. Micah 2 verse 12, I will indeed gather all of you, Jacob. I will collect the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in the middle of its pasture. It will be noisy with people. One who breaks open, the way will advance before them. They'll break out, pass through the city gate and leave by it. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord as their leader. Micah says, you people, you need to expect and, and, and be ready for a shepherd king who's coming to lead you as sheep towards this new community with each other, towards this new kingdom. And then picking up on the theme that many of the prophets point towards, the theme of the fallen temple, Micah points to this promise of a new temple, a better temple, the new Jerusalem. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, he says this, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established, and the top of the mountains will be raised above the hills, and people will stream to it. And many nations will come and say, come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about His ways so that we will walk in His paths, for instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." Micah wants to let him know that though the temple is going to crumble, it's going to fall. A new temple will be rebuilt and God's plan of blessing coming from the people to the people will be experienced once again. He goes on. He will settle disputes among many nations and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against the nation and they will never again train for war. But each person will sit under his grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten him. For the mouth of the Lord's armies has spoken. Though all the peoples walk in the name of their own gods, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And on that day, this is the Lord's declaration. I will assemble the lame and gather the scattered, those who I have injured. I will make the lame into a remnant, those far removed into a strong nation, and then the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time on forever. Mike is describing that, that a time is coming when heaven and earth will once again intersect and the people will experience a true and lasting and a final hope and promise. And Michael will expand on on that hope of what's to come in chapters 4 and 5, in that after the Assyrians attack, Israel will be taken into Babylon. But from there, God will restore the people of Israel and bring them right back into their land. Though things will be very dark for the people, very challenging, he promises that hope will arise. He goes on, writhe and cry out, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you'll leave the city and camp in the open fields. You will go to Babylon, and there you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the grasp of your enemies. And then from that new Jerusalem, Micah describes that there's a new king who will rise as well. He says he's going to be a descendant of David, and he's going to be born in the the town of Bethlehem, and he will rule over the restored people with power. Spoiler alert. If you haven't read the rest of the story, Mike is talking about Christ here. Micah 5, verse 2. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be a ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity and from ancient times. And he will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord. In the majestic name of the Lord his God, they will live securely. For then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth and he will be their peace. And Finally, Micah describes that this new, this, this restored community will once again finally be the blessing to all the nations of the world. Again, it's this callback to the Genesis 12 narrative of a nation that has been blessed for a reason. It's been blessed for a purpose, not to hoard the blessing for itself, but to give it away and that eventually God will once and for all time remove all evil from this world. See, this is why Israel's behavior, it it mattered so much to God. We've got to understand that, that these words of warning and judgment, they're not directed to the broader world at large or to those who are far from God or not interested in God altogether. These words of warning are actually directed to the very people of God. Just last weekend, um, I had a conversation down here at the front where one of our, our church members came and just very tenderly asked a question that went something like this. Why did God, Brody, why did God only choose one group of people? Why did did he do that? Why didn't he choose the the whole world? And that's a very fair and and real honest question. God could have chosen everyone on the planet to simply receive his blessing, but he opted for for choice and for free will, for, for commitment to God to be a decision that each and every person makes, not a program that's just built into their design and DNA. But here's the key. He didn't only choose one group to receive his blessing, but he chose one group to be a conduit of his blessing. See, God's love and his redemptive plan is for the entire earth. We see this all throughout Scripture. But in his very humanity-centric way, he wanted his blessing to be known and experienced through his most beloved creation. And he does it over and over and over again. This is his pattern. This was the pattern of Christ. And time and time again, the people would get it wrong. They would make make God's name neither great nor holy, but instead sour and unappealing, which if you're here and you'd consider yourself a follower of Jesus, this is why the way you live your life actually matters so much. Because you're either going to be reflecting the goodness and grace and love and mercy of the Father, or you're going to be misrepresenting the heart of the Father to the rest of the world. The final two chapters in the book of Micah then return to the same pattern of the, of the prophets of warning and judgment followed by hope and promise. Again, he exposes these unjust practices of Israel, how they were taking advantage of the poor. And it's here where we have Micah's probably most famous verse, the one that you're most familiar with regarding how the people were to live their lives, which was in direct contrast to how they were currently living their lives. Micah 6 verse 8. Mankind, he's told each of you what is good. And what is it that the Lord requires of you? To act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. I mean, this is the bullseye of of God's call to the people and the leaders of Israel. Stop. Stop what you're doing. Stop the injustice. Stop the disobedience to God. Stop the prideful arrogance of the rich and the wealthy and the famous. Act justly, he pleads. Right the wrongs of this world. Love, faithfulness, desire a people, desire to be a people who can be counted on and walk with humility, humbly with God, period. And then Micah turns the corner for a bit and gives us one last profound picture of hope. And he does so by personifying Israel as this broken individual at the end of his rope, sitting alone in shame and defeat. Clearly, Micah's pointing towards the incoming rock bottom that Israel's about to experience, of Assyrian defeat and Babylonian exile. And this individual, Israel, is watching for God, looking for God and begging God for mercy, begging God to listen to him and to forgive him. And at this point... (laughs) we might all ask the question, why? I mean, why should God even consider giving His mercy, extending His grace? The people have blown it over and over and over again for thousands of years. I mean that's the meta narrative of the of the whole story of scripture. God blesses and he gives to the people and hopes that the people will multiply that blessing to the rest of the world and instead they pervert it, they hoard it, they keep it for themselves, they fight over it, they steal it and they continue to do so all the way up to today. So why? Why should God still be a God who can be counted on and asked to show mercy? At some point, wouldn't it make sense for God to just say, you know, throw up his hands and sort of say, I quit. Like, I'm done. This isn't going to work, obviously. We've tried this over and over and over again, and nothing is changing, and so I'm out. I'm done with this people. But Micah reminds us that that's not who God is, nor who God has always proven himself to be. That's how we act, right? Like, that's me, that's that's you, if you're really honest. Mercy and forgiveness are rarities in our world today, but not so with God, because God is different, who is like Yahweh, and God has always been different. Micah 7, verse 18, who's like you, God? Forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not hold anger, hold on to his anger forever, because he delights in faithful love. Who's like you? Not us. Not me. If you're real honest, probably not you. Micah says, you're the one You're the one who forgives. You're the one who who always passes over our brokenness, the brokenness of the ones that you've chosen to bring about your hope and promises to the world, and yet we continue to blow it over and over, yet you are the one whose anger subsides and then turns into faithful love. It's who you are. It's who you are, God. This is the very character that's central to the very heart of God. And Micah would continue to describe that it's who God has always been. Look at verse 20. You will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to our ancestors from days long ago. Micah says, just like you were faithful then to our ancestors, to them at the very beginning of our story together, ancestors whom themselves continued to not get it right over and over again, just like you forgave them, God, and passed over their rebellion, just like you let go of your anger and poured out your faithful love to them thousands of years ago, we know that we can count on you to do the same thing for us today. And Micah is anchoring his call of the people all the way back again to Genesis chapter 12, a people chosen by God to be a blessing to all the world. Micah helps us to see that the only way, the only way for us to become that blessing is to deal with our lack of faithfulness to God. It's why this bounce constantly between God's judgment and God's promises, between his warnings and between his hope. God must confront Israel's corruption, evil, and sin, but it's always done so in the context of His covenant, love, and promises which are far more powerful than human evil. And as we finally come to the place, when we, like Israel, finally get to the end of our rope, we finally humble ourselves to our knees in desperation and in brokenness, we reach out to Him This is what Micah says in verse 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. My friends, this is the powerful promise that that is available To each and every one of us today, the promise of God's great compassion over us, of all of our wrongs being made right, of a slate that's been wiped clean and a new seat that's been made available to us as the righteous sons and daughters of the King Most High. And so we should not only be comfortable with prophetic calls towards obedience and commitment to the Lord like this, we should actually hunger for it. We should hunger for that call back to himself, back to his kingdom being fully realized here on earth today as it is in heaven. We've got to get this. We've got to to lean into this. My friends, you hear us often say around here that you are welcome here, that you belong here, but our desire isn't for you to just be here and to consume a few messages and sing a few songs and and make a few friends along the way. As good as that is, but our desire is that you'd actually be transformed here. And as a result of your radical personal transformation where you rid yourself of the competing gods in your life and you worship and serve. Serve the one and only true God that then you would move towards being a person who helps others experience that same transformation. A person who's on mission for the Lord, who's found their place and their purpose in God's kingdom and who is actively and passionately pursuing it. That's what we're doing here. And if we've somehow communicated anything less than that, then we need to repent of that and we need to reclaim where it is that we need to be going. We are blessed in order to be a blessing. We are transformed in order to bring about transformation here on earth. This is so much more than just a big social club. And the wonderfully, beautifully complex part of all of this is the answer that you might be wrestling with right now, but how? How do I go about experiencing that that transformation? How do, I, how do I go about producing that powerful, changing, growing work of discipleship? Is it more classes? Is it more church, like coming Saturday and Sunday? Is, is it more Bible reading? Is it, is it more praying? How do we do it and Micah, I think, anticipating some of that wrestle, right before his summary of what God requires of the people, the, the acting justly, the loving faithfulness, and the walking humbly with our God, he said this in verse 6 and 7, what should I bring before the Lord? When, when I come to bow before God on high, should I, should I come before Him with burnt offerings and with year-old calves? And then Micah gets hyperbolic. Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give him my firstborn son for my transgression, the offspring of my body for my own sin? What should I do? What should we do to receive this? Again, remembering back to the very beginning of the message where we started in Micah chapter 5. When we saw Micah speaking to all that God was going to purge from the people of God, one of those very things was this thing, all that we can do. Look again at verse 13 in chapter 5. I will remove your carved images and their sacred pillars from you so that you will no longer worship the works of your hands. Why? Because Micah points towards a powerful truth that will change everything a powerful truth and reality that actually has the, the ability to transform our lives. Look again at Micah 6 verse 7. Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offspring of, the bo- of my body for my own sin? I don't, I don't know if Micah knew the rest of the story as much as I like to think he does, but God knew the rest of the story. God put all this together. See, my friends, He will. God will have compassion on you. He will vanquish your iniquities. He will cast all of your sins into the depths of the sea. He will show you loyalty and faithful love, which he swore to the people at the very beginning. And his anger will turn to delight and faithful love because as the rest of the story goes, he gives his firstborn for your transgression, for your sin. It's right there. I mean, this is the gospel. What should we do? How can we fabricate it? Nothing. You can't do a single thing to create this or earn this favor based on your duty or your offerings or your Bible reading or your small group attendance because it has already been done for you. Forgiveness and grace and hope and promise and transformation, it is readily available to you and all you have to do is step into it. All you have to do is come to the end of yourself where you say, I'm done trying to do this for myself. And I just need your mercy, I need your grace. I need you to do for me what I've been trying to do for myself. And then, once you've received that, then Micah says, go and show justice to the world. Don't be someone who hoards blessing for yourself or takes blessing away from others. Then love faithfulness, long to be one who wants to be available to Jesus and close to Jesus, who longs to be loyal to Jesus and Jesus alone. And then walk with humility, walk humbly with God, acknowledging that it's about him and for him, always to him. Know him, get to know his love and adoration and joy and delight over you as you worship him as the only one worthy of our worship, the one who is faithful to his promises, and That's the Book of Micah. Now, as is our practice on on weekends like this, when we have communion, um, we invite and have a, t- a people of uh, a team of people ready to to pray for our our congregation, to pray for you. And they would love nothing more than than to be able to sit with you and and to carry along the burden that you might feel like you're carrying. Um, and so, I'm going to invite them down in just a minute. I'm going to pray, and then they're going to be here and. Some of us are going to leave to, to pizza with the pastor, but they're going to be marked with a green lanyard. It'll be really obvious. But maybe for some of you, you need to, to finally, or for the first time, make the decision that it's, that it's time to let go of that that I'm trying to be in control of. Maybe for some of you, it's the very first time that you just need to acknowledge your gaze being lifted up and pointed towards the person, the Son of Christ the son of, son of God Christ. Maybe for some of you, it's, it's time for you to, to recommit, to make a decision, a declaration that, that though you once, you know, would acknowledge that Christ was the, the center of your worship, you've allowed other things to, to steal that adoration and devotion. And, and so maybe for some of you, this is a moment where you need to just come and be still with someone and and ask for them to help put words to what it is that the Spirit might be doing in your soul. And so the team is going to be here, and they'd love to, to pray with you and for you about something like that. And I just want to encourage you, like if God's doing something in your soul, in your spirit right now, don't waste a moment like this. Don't walk out of here. If, if you know there's something that you need to talk about, there's something you need to deal with. And so I'm going to pray. And then the space and time is, is going to be for you. And the team is here, ready to pray with you and for you. So, let's pray. God, I'm humbled by um, just how amazing Your Word is, and um, I look at things like this, and I hear words written some 700 years before Christ ever walked this earth, and I just see all the pieces, how they fit together and come together and point towards something that is so much bigger than, than who we are as a body of believers points to a story that is so grand and, and incredible. I'm grateful that we have access to this, that that we're so spoiled in North America to have so many means and resources to understand and study and so many people that are way smarter than I'll ever be to help us process this stuff and see you in and through it. I'm grateful for conversations like this. I'm grateful for the tension of your love and mercy, which I, I long for and I lean into constantly, but also your call for me to, to figure some stuff out, to wrestle with things that are getting in the way of me fully experiencing your love and your mercy. And so as Micah tried to help the people of Israel wrestle, um, I pray that, that his words would help us wrestle with this today as well. I pray for my friends here in this space, some of whom know they've... They've kind of come to the end of themselves and they realize that things are really bad. And I just pray that in these moments, whether it's coming and praying with someone here, whether it's coming, praying with someone they came with, whether it's praying later tonight, that their gaze would be lifted to you and that they would know that the ask for your mercy to reign, for your love to be experienced, it's who you are. There's no one like you. There's no one who extends that level of grace and forgiveness over and over and over again. And it's who you've always been. And so if we ever doubt whether we're worthy of that grace, whether we're worthy of experiencing that level of forgiveness, Jesus, remind us, help us to look to the cross. Remind us that, that it was you who made this all possible because you gave your firstborn, the offspring of yourself, so that we could experience that transformational love and grace and acceptance and forgiveness. And so, Jesus, help us not waste that. Help us not take advantage of that, but may it move us towards people who want to be and desire to be transformed so that the world and the community around us can also experience that same transformation. We love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.